there is one great event. An event that attracts more admiration than any other event in all of history. And it's toward that event that all the eyes of all the saints who've ever lived before the Christian era were always focused on and always directed toward. And backwards now through all the years of history, the eyes of all the modern saints are looking at it and looking for it. And that singular event that people looked forward to and people look backward to is the death of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The eyes of the redeemed of all ages are perpetually fixed upon Jesus Christ. Thousands of pilgrims through this world of tears have no higher object for their faith than the death of Jesus. They have no better desire for their vision. And that is the desire to see Jesus as He is in heaven and in communion to behold His person. Isaiah chapter 53 and is at the heart of the redemptive story of the human family. It's in Isaiah chapter 53 that we see the story and the picture of the suffering Savior. It is from Isaiah 53 that the eunuch was reading when Philip joined himself to the chariot in Acts chapter 8. He was reading, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before his share is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. That's the passage that the eunuch was reading from when Philip started preaching to him Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see a prophecy pointing 700 years into the future. This morning for a few moments. Using Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10 as our guide, as our benchmark, we propose to visit Calvary. I would have us to first of all this morning notice the cause of Jesus' death as it's recorded there. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And notice there the reason for the death of Jesus. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And then you see in that passage the effects and the consequences of Jesus' death. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If you read the life of Jesus, and if you read it as mere history, through mere history you trace the death of Jesus Christ to the enmity of the Jews, coupled with the fickle character of a Roman governor by the name of Pilate. And if you view it just as history and you attribute it to the Jews and the fickle government, doing that you act 
justly. Because the crime and sin of the death of our Savior has to lay, it must lay, at the door of humanity. Our race, the human race, became a deicide and put our Lord to death. It nailed the Savior, the Son of God, to a tree. But, if you read the Bible not as history, but you read the Bible with an eye of faith, if you have a desire to discover and uncover the hidden treasures and the hidden secrets of the Bible, then there's more in the death of our Savior than Roman cruelty, and there's more in His death than Jewish malice. It is the solemn Decree of God being fulfilled by men. Men who were ignorant, to be sure, but guilty instruments of the accomplishment of the death of Jesus. If you look to uncover the hidden secrets and treasures of God's Word, you look beyond the Roman spear, you look beyond the Roman nails, you look beyond that rough-hewn wooden cross, and you look beyond the Jewish taunts and jeers of that day. And you look up. And looking up, you see that sacred fountain from which all blessings flow. And you trace the crucifixion of Jesus on that cross to the God of heaven. You believe what Peter said. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's what Peter said preaching on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. Now understand, we do not indict God with the sin, but the fact, with all of its marvelous, wonderful effects, and the redemption of the world has to be traced to the sacred fountain of divine love flowing down from God in heaven. And so therefore we have the words of our text we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Christ was sent into the world by the Father because of God's affection for the people. For me and you. When it says, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 3 and verse 16. The death of Jesus Christ was by the decree of Almighty God. It was God that determined Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary. It was God that determined that He would suffer under Pontius Pilate. It was God that He determined that He would descend into the Hadean unseen world of the dead. And that He would rise again, leading captivity captive. And He would reign forever at the right hand of the Majesty on high. What did our text say? It has pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It has pleased the Lord to bruise Him and to put Him to grief. The death of Jesus was by the will of God. Jesus Christ coming into this world
to die. It was the effect of the Father's will. And it was the effect of the Father's pleasure. Jesus didn't just come into this world on a whim. Jesus did not come into this world unsent. I want you to go back with me this morning by an eye of faith. I want you to go back with me to a scene from olden times. I want you to see an old, gray-bearded patriarch by the name of Abraham. And I want you to see this man of God rise up early one morning and take his son and his servants and a load of wood and put them all on the donkeys and head toward the mountains. And they traveled a three-day journey in silence. And they get to the mountain. And this gray-bearded patriarch, he takes his son, and his son carries the wood. And they're going up the mountainside to offer an offering to God. You see, God has told that gray-bearded patriarch, He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And as they go up the mountainside, that son says, Father, we have the wood for the altar and the sacrifice, but where's the lamb for the offering? And you know what that gray-bearded patriarch said? He said, my son, God will provide. They get to the appointed place and they build the altar and they put the wood on the altar And Abraham takes his only son and he binds him and he places him on that altar. Not a word of protest is heard from Isaac. And he takes his, he unsheaths his knife and he raises his knife to take his son's life because that's what God told him to do. And the messenger of God, the angel of God stayed his hand and there in the brush was a ram caught by the horns. And God had indeed provided the sacrifice. Now I want to take you from that scene of that gray-bearded patriarch and his son Isaac on the mountainside and I want to take you to a greater scene. I want to take you to a scene on Calvary's hill. I want to take you to a scene where the spotless, immaculate Son of God is spread out on the ground and attached to a rough-hewn wooden cross, and Roman nails are driven through His hands, a spike is driven through His feet, and that cross is placed in the ground, and there He hangs. Suspended between heaven and earth, dying for you and for me. Why did Abraham take his son to the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice? Because God commanded him to do it. And because of faith and obedience, Abraham did it. But what love, what faith and obedience made, constrained, forced Abraham to do, what faith and obedience forced Abraham to do, love constrained God to do on Calvary's hill for me. Our text states the reason that Jesus is hanging on that Roman cross. Thou shalt make His soul an offering for sin. 
God is good. God is inherently good. And God as being good cannot condone evil. Evil must, at the demand of justice, be punished. God loves man. God loves us. Me and you. I know. I've been told sometimes I'm not real lovable. Well, some of you aren't either. But God loves us anyway. And God wants us to be saved. And the Bible says God is long-suffering to us. Peter said God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The just desert for the human race was death. What Paul say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's always been true. The wages of sin is death. Mercy. Mercy cries for the salvation of men and women today. Justice demands our execution. And the question then becomes, how can that problem, how can that dilemma, how can it be solved? How can the conflicting demands of justice and mercy both be met? And the answer to that is in that cross that we left over there on Calvary's hill. That's where the demands of justice and mercy can both be met. At the cross, justice and mercy meet in love. Sin in the body of the one who was sinless received its just retribution. And at the same time, the cry of mercy through the power of God's love was answered and salvation was offered to a sinful race of people. There's a very illustrative story that's handed down from the tradition of the Medes and the Persians. The laws of the Medes and the Persians were unalterable. And the penalties of those laws were inescapable. And the laws of the Medes and the Persians were very similar in their demands to those of the Jews. An eye was demanded for an eye. A tooth was demanded for a tooth. And there was a young man who had put out the eyes of one of his fellow men. Both of them. And the law demanded that as punishment for his crime, he must have both of his eyes plucked out. The young criminal was brought to trial. And in this particular case, the judge was his own father. And there's the father. Sitting in judgment of his son, and the contradicting cries of mercy and justice are ringing in that father's ears. The father loved his son. The father respected the law. The guilty must be punished. 
The majesty of the law must be upheld. But a father's love must find a way to show mercy. And finally the judge, the father, said, Son, as your judge, I'm forced to assess the penalty of the law. The law demands that two eyes must be given for the two eyes that you have destroyed. And my son, I can do no less than meet the full demands of the law. But as your father, I offer one of my eyes to meet the demands and the requirements of justice. Sin brings suffering. Mankind had sinned and must therefore suffer. But God, in Jesus Christ, suffered with men and women. And so, in the death of Jesus on that cross, we have a symbol of God's substitution for Himself for sinful men and women, people like me and you. It was on that cross. Jesus became a propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, in my place. Jesus Christ, in your place, was offered up on Mount Calvary. Stay with me by an eye of faith. We put Him there just a moment ago, didn't we? You see... I want you to look back to that scene. I want you to visualize that cross. And when you see Christ hurled on His back a moment ago, and those nails driven through His hands and His feet, you see us there, me and you. When you see those nails driven in Him, we were there. And the soldiers lift Him up and put that cross in that hole in the ground, that socket, Prepared for it. And as Jesus is hanging there and His holy flesh is tearing, it's torn with agonies that cannot be described. But when you see Him on that cross, when you see Him dying there, the innocent for the guilty, the pure for the impure, when you see it there, Jesus is dying there as a substitute. He's my substitute. He's your substitute. What did Isaiah say? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, Isaiah said. The effect of the death of Jesus is salvation. 
It's through the blood that was shed in the death of Jesus Christ that the remission of sins is obtained. It's through the blood that Jesus shed on that cross we can truthfully sing, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God's eternal plan of salvation centers in the cross of Jesus Christ. The story is told of a divorced husband and wife. And they're standing in a hospital room on either side of a bed. And in that bed is their small little boy. Tubes coming out of every orifice in his body. A little boy that's dying. And as that little child lays there in that hospital bed, drawing the last breath that child will ever draw on this earth, that little child reaches out his hands. And he took the hand of his father. And he took the hand of his mother. And laying there, holding mommy's hand and daddy's hand, the last breath of life left that child and returned to the God who gave it. And that man and that woman were drawn together once more by an object of mutual love. They were pulled closer and they were connected by two tiny hands as they grew cold in death. And that husband and that wife were reunited and a once broken home was restored. On that cross, the Son of God Jesus Christ, who was also the Son of Man. He reached with one of those nail-pierced hands into heaven and He took the hand of God. And with that other nail-scarred hand, He reached down to the depths of sinful earth and to the most pitiful depths of sin, He took my hand. And Jesus took your hand. And in that same way, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. On that cross, on Calvary's hill, Jesus died. And He died for me. And He died for you. May God draw us nearer to that cross. May God help us to be obedient to the law of that cross. May we be willing to share with our Lord the burden of that cross. 
May we walk closer to that cross every day. And as we walk closer to that cross, and as we live God's kind of life and do things God wants us to do, may we walk close to that cross until someday the Master's voice will call us to lay down that old rugged cross and exchange it for a heavenly crown. Blessed thought and happy day. How close are you walking to the cross of Christ? It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.